I'm Neil Piggott. Welcome to episode two of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a fellow artist about their life and how they do what they do. On occasion, the show will also focus on an arts or cultural event that has escaped the attention of the mainstream media. Over the course of the next few months, I'll be speaking with friends, acquaintances and total strangers in their creative spaces. The conversations will be unstructured and freewheeling rather than pointed or driven. I'll try to follow their lead, not pursue my own as much as I can. My hope is that we capture something of the essence of each person's individual process, how they go about doing what they do, their personal journey making art. And each episode is released alongside an article that will appear first in the Daily Review, the online arts news and opinion pages published by Ray Gill. It's a great site, and if you have an interest in the arts, I encourage you to jump online and have a look. The articles will also appear on the Making Art website, www.makingart.com.au. My guest today is the Melbourne poet Peter Bukowski. Peter began writing poetry while he was travelling in Texas in 1983 in response to a Dear John letter he received from a girlfriend back home in St Kilda. Since then, his work has been regularly found in arts and literature journals worldwide and translated into over a dozen languages. He's a recipient of the prestigious Victorian Premier's C.J. Dennis Poetry Prize and has published eight volumes of poems, including a recent highly successful volume of his works translated into French, published in, of all places, France. I talked with Peter and his dog at a simple round table in his kitchen in the Melbourne suburb of Richmond, where despite having a study, he does a great deal of his writing. After his wife Helen said her goodbyes as she left in search of a loaf of bread and with the poodle at my feet, I began by asking him what it's like to sit down in the mornings with a blank page. Now, given it was a beautiful autumn day in Melbourne, you may occasionally hear the reassuring and ever so delicious sound of sun showers falling on a tin roof and the lazy rustling of a dog under the table. Here's Peter Bukowski and the blank page. It's, um, I talk about when I give poetry workshops, I talk about facing the blank page calm but open. So if you have these negative thoughts when you face the blank page, everything I've written in the last month is terrible, I've got no ideas, what can I possibly write about? As soon as you say that to yourself, your mind is going to close, not be open to what's on the blank page. So you try. I try and have these um, a list and I ask myself what have I always wanted to write about and it can sometimes be a one word trigger on your list like and I go back to sort of pivotal moments in my life so one of the pivotal moments is when I went underwent a eight hour heart operation Hmm. and so I put surgery on my list of things to write about and once you put it on your list your subconscious starts thinking about it so i was walking through the fitzroy gardens and i was trying to think of a refreshing way to describe an anaesthetist (laughs) and i had my notepad on me and i wrote down sheriff of pulses for a metaphor for a refreshing way to describe such a person and the rest of the poem built around that and there have been other pivotal moments in my life that I've put on my list my parents divorce when I was 18 an elongated loud divorce that was extremely pivotal 
and once I put divorce on my list of things to write about it it came around the poem came around and I have other what I call creative prompts I write acrostic poems so sometimes I'll just write a, a word vertically like identity mm -hmm. and I'll sort of use that as scaffolding and have a go at writing a poem so using I as the yeah, letter for, of the first for word like yeah. and of course that can be I am or I'm not sure who I am or it doesn't have to be the word I but that sort of you're always trying to find seeds what I call seeds and the other day I was in the city Melbourne City Library and that's been another process to go to a place and sit in front of the blank page or blank screen and come up with a poem and I went to the Melbourne City Library in Flinders Lane and I went three days in a row and I noticed this Asian guy probably mid-30s neatly dressed but he was every time I encountered him he was asleep in a chair near the literature section so I was obviously going there to sleep catch up on sleep he didn't look homeless and I ended up writing a poem about it ended up being about a, a sailor and I called the, the poem The Sailor Who Lost His Sea. <laughs> and um, it was just triggered by this man asleep in a chair in the city library. And he got, became a metaphor for an individual that was a little bit lost. There was an interesting, there's a, well, there's a lot of beautiful poems of yours, but there's one that I remember, and I think it's in The Heart at 3am, about a, a guy somewhere in the Middle East sitting and through, and it's, it talks about him sitting through the day and what he sees and how the day comes to him. Uh, was that one of those occasions? Yeah, well, th that was in Alexandria in Egypt, and there was this man without any arms and legs and a friend would put him on a piece of carpet on the pavement with a tin cup in front mm. of him and I call that poem The Worm Man of Alex Alexandria because he was sort of tormented and I had this idea that eventually the sun the, the, the intense Egyptian sun would drive him mad and maybe being mad with that physical uh, affliction in the poem I talk about that place of madness being a kinder place I mean that certainly could be totally naive but the idea of escaping from his physical situation well you know madness is uh, it's interesting isn't it if a if a man talks to a telegraph pole in the street, you think he's mad, but if you find the Pope talking to a tree in the Vatican, you, you say he's talking to God. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that, that is... Our, our, the way we perceive other people, we sometimes make assumptions, but often in a poem I'm trying to enter the headspace of a real person, an, a historical person, that I've researched, or a per person I've totally made up as a representative of humankind. Um, and I, I like to write poems uh, where the main character's female, because uh, it's just me having a go at thinking about what this particular female character in the poem what their obsessions might be, what they'd be concerned about, what um, obstacles they'd have, and how they'd make a breakthrough. And that, that, that idea of obstacle and breakthrough, uh, how we're simultaneously vulnerable 
but tenacious. Uh, that that remains a sort of lifelong study via poems. I know in one of your um, uh, books you have a quote from Soren Kierkegaard that's uh, life must be lived forwards but can only be understood backwards. Now Kierkegaard was a was was an ex regarded I think as the first existential philosopher. Yeah, he was concerned with you know. Uh, uh, well, we all pay a price for living. Mm. I mean, in some ways, yeah. Uh, I find that there's a kind of is it, is part of what you're trying to do. I, I mean, we all are, I guess. Understand what it is. What it is, this thing that we have, this thing called life. Yeah, I've. There's been times where I've been tempted to call my next book of poetry the cost of living, but. Uh, I still don't think it's quite a, a refreshing enough title. And some might people, be true, though. <laughs> yeah, some people might think it's an economics book. Um, but, yeah, and then there's the other thing of attempting... You know, we talk about being, and there's a lot of um, self-help books maybe that talk about being in the moment and... You know, I think we, each of us, most of us have difficulty. We're either maybe worrying. Worrying is a big thing that I think about because a lot of it is, is in your mind, and, but it's projecting into the future worry often. Um, and then there's, of course, nostalgia. And then I think in nostalgia, we can cosmeticize the past and and sort of tell ourselves that it was better than it was unless it was horrendous for us but but staying simply being that phrase simply being it's not that that simple no these are um i'm just i've got one of your poetry books here while we're talking and i'm trying to find a line where you and i think it's in uh the heart of 3am something about mm. worrying but right. I can't remember what the line was oh yeah um, well, it's, I think it's worrying is our most perfected art yeah something like <laughs> yeah. that yeah that because um, there's I, I think I tried to write an aphorism where um, something about I worry whether I worry too much or not enough and I think there's a pressure on parents some parents are warriors and some particularly women i think worry whether they're worrying enough about their children <laughs> and so uh, and, and 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 you you write about death um mm. a bit too i mean this particular um and yes i think a lot about death mm. um I think it's important to think about things that are so popular, which is, I mean, it is popular, isn't it? Because yeah. it, it happens, yeah. it just seems to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, personally, I've got a strong uh, tidal sense of mortality because of my heart condition, mm. being born with a hole in the heart. But I think that gives me... A sense of also returning to gratitude. I try and remind myself uh, not about what I haven't got, but the idea of gratitude. And, you know, I'm lucky to be here uh, talking to you because I've survived two heart operations and a bit of a crisis when I ended up getting a um, pacemaker put in. So yeah, and all the hitchhiking I did, all the travelling I did, all the trains and planes I've caught, uh, you know, nothing, in all my, when I went travelling for seven years, nothing bad happened to me. But I feel I was giving out a sort of positive vibe. I, I do tend to trust the world and I'm dismayed that we live in such a fearful world now and I don't like fear mongers and fear sellers 
Mm. Why, why aren't pe- more people selling trust? <laughs> Probably because, you know, you can't trust. Trust. Yeah. yeah. Or the, the, we're brought up not to trust, aren't we? Um, we're, we're brought up to, I don't know, I, I feel like per- mm. the, world, the world will get us if we're not careful. Yeah, we've got to... I, I, m- what I come back to lately is I'm always talking to uh, my wife, Helen, about balance. It's all about each day finding a balance, like mixing up work and exercise, work and pleasure, um, nourishing yourself creative, creatively, um, so I nourish myself in three ways by constantly reading. I love reading. Um, reading gives me poems. I'm going on walks, and you'll find a lot of classical composers would go on a walk and sort of solve the next part of their symphony or piece of music they were writing. And um, there's a Latin phrase in English, another sort of aphorism or epigram that I love, it is solved by walking. Hmm. Uh, and that's why I sometimes have the ritual of walking from here in Richmond to the city library. And already in the process of walking, I'm starting to get ideas and I might end up sitting on a park bench in uh, the Fitzroy libraries um, feeling quite anxious to write down a phrase that might have come into my head on the walk so I don't lose the phrase and that idea of walking and I usually stop and have a, a cafe latte at Pellegrini's and then the, <laughs> the caffeine in the cafe latte, latte uh, helps me a little bit with the process too I think is that a tradition, the, the coffee at Pellegrini's? Well, I talk about um, footy with Paul the barista. Uh, what and team do you barrack for? I barrack for Richmond and he's Carlton. And, uh, Both very unfortunate. Yeah, so we, we sometimes commiserate or... Uh, well, you we, would have done a lot of cheering. Yeah, yeah, lately it's turned around and... Uh, it's just, a, I've worked at that top end of Burke Street where Pellegrini's is. I worked at Gaslight Records for 16 years and then Thomas's Music at 31 Burke Street for over a decade. And then I've always haunted the paperback bookshop and the Hill of Content and Pellegrini's. And so it's a little village up there and I've, I've got to know the proprietors and, and we have nice little chats. Music's been a big part of your life. Was it music that got you travelling in 83? Because I know you wrote your first poem. You were staying with a friend in Texas. He was a record collector and uh, he lived in Waco, Texas. And he quite liked um, British invasion groups like the Kinks. And I, I decided to visit um, him in Waco, Texas. And quite soon after I'd already bought the plane ticket to North America from Melbourne I'd met, I'd met a St Kilda girl and I was tempted to tear up the plane ticket to North America but she said no go on your trip and when I got to Waco Texas there was a dear John letter from her and at the friend's farmhouse in Waco Texas there's a manual typewriter and I wrote uh, cry the heart response to receiving that Dear John letter, I wrote it out on the typewriter and it was my first proper poem and at the time I thought I'd been away from Australia for six weeks but I ended up travelling for seven years and the travelling gave me more experiences, more encounters with remarkable people and um, more poems. So I became a poet when I when I hit that road hit the road at the age of 28. You read K- Kerouac's. Yeah, I read on the road when I was 18, sitting 
behind my parents' shop at a Laminex table, kitchen table. And that somehow was the seed for me 10 years later to do my own hitting of the road. And I did go down to Mexico because of the part in On the Road where Kerouac goes to Mexico. You didn't go to that. There's a fire lookout in somewhere in... Oh, yeah, that's in... Uh, I went around the sort of Big Sur area and, um, yeah, Kerouac was a, a fire lookout, but then the temptation to go back down and to San Francisco and a drink uh, with Ferlinghetti or Corso pulled Kerouac away from that sort of um, idea of seeking Satori up on that fire lookout. Uh, He's very torn between that sort of hermetic life and the, the life of his buddies and carousing and Gary Schneider was much more focused and he was influenced by Japan and he was much better at being a fire lookout than, than Kerouac. You need a bit of zen, I think, to be a fire lookout, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you, you need to sort of feel comfortable in nature. And on and, your own. And, and not be tempted by the sort of Babylon of the city. Do you like being on your own? Because you would have spent a lot of time on your own in those. I like solitude, but I've had extreme emotional agony from loneliness. So the gulf between solitude and loneliness, I've explored it my whole life. And even though I've been lovely married to Helen for over 28 years, uh, nearly 28 years, I still live in my head a little bit each day and Helen's aware of that. So I escape and become solitude-like in my own head and I can actually zone out at this kitchen table and and write a poem and the members of my family know not to interrupt me or else I just say, hey, I'm writing a poem. the ground rules are known and adhered to, but I can certainly sit here and write a poem in this kitchen. If you just sat there and read a book for the rest of the day, I might be able to sit here and write a poem. Was the travelling... You also read uh, Bukowski. Yeah, Charles Bukowski, yeah. Um, yeah. Bukowski, Bukowski. Yeah. Mm. When you was that while you were on that trip that you came into contact with Bukowski? Oh, oh a very mm. early girlfriend who was a Melbourne tram conductress gave me a Charles Bukowski pamphlet, and I sort of didn't get Charles Bukowski straight away. Um, but there was a, one line I liked in one of the poems in the pamphlet, and that was something like, people run from the rain but sit in bathtubs full of water. <laughs> and, um, and I'm pretty sure the pamphlet was called Poems Written Before Jumping Out of an Eight-Story Building. And um, then I went on to read a lot of Bukowski, and what Charles Bukowski's poetry taught me was that you could write about the domestic and the urban and the local and you could use ordinary language. And when I was in London, I discovered a quote by Schopenhauer, which remains a sort of lighthouse for me. And that was, use ordinary words to say extraordinary things. Schopenhauer, another philosopher. So, yes. and I noticed that there's a, I think it's a Kant book on the, on is there an Immanuel Kant book over there? Philosophy no. or Sati, is, is it? Uh, oh, that's Eric Sati. Uh, that's just uh, the m- sort of minimalist piano composer, Eric Sati. Oh, it's Eric Sati. Yes, yeah. So minimalist piano com. Music's been a big part, hasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Is it so, a big part of the creative thing for you? Uh, 
Well, like if you get someone like Eric Sardi, there's the space between notes as is as important as the notes themselves. So it's about choice, the careful uh, choice of using words. I love the the sort of what I call the sculpture of poetry. I like how a poem can look and I'm always pruning and chipping away any superfluous words in the poem and I always remind myself what am I trying to say in this poem and have I said it clearly and strongly and Sati was great at that the Jimpanese yeah yeah it's 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 a sort of uh, he started his own religion and there is something where something spiritual about his solo piano music and you can imagine him sitting in Notre Dame Cathedral and looking at the variety of people entering people who were maybe um, street sweepers chambermaids then someone who was maybe hoping for uh, absolution absolution go to confession for their French adultery or whatever. So uh, there's there's certainly a sort of um, spiritual aspect to his music. Contemplative, I suppose, is the word. So I do find writing poetry, sitting quietly facing a blank page, uh, contemplative, and it's it is somehow therapeutic for me, even if. The subject matter, like writing about my parents' divorce, even even if that's difficult, I feel I'm interested in honest and frank and clear, unadorned writing because I never forget that we're trying to communicate to each other in a piece of writing. So if I want you to understand me, I'm going to use ordinary language, direct, clear language to get my point across. That's possibly, at least for me, one of the most ravishing and evocative pieces of music ever written. Gymnopodies number one, and I probably pronounced that incorrectly, but the piano piece by the French composer Eric Satie. I'm Neil Pickett and you're listening to episode two of Making Art. Making Art is released alongside an article about the featured artist written by me and published first in the Daily Review. The Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts, news and opinion site and it's totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So, if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, I encourage you to get online and have a look. And while you're there, click on the menu and head to the support page. Pay as much as you like. In fact, if it makes you feel good, go ahead. Sell the car. No, don't. But please consider a modest contribution that will help maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. Whatever you do donate will also help us cover the cost of making this podcast. 
You can also visit the Making Art website for helpful links to things that have been mentioned in our conversation at www.makingart.com.au. And yes, we have a donate page too. That is the end of the cell. So it's back to my conversation with Peter, who I might add very kindly read me one of his poems, which you can hear at the end of the episode. During our little break, we had a cup of tea, stretched our legs much to the dog's relief, and we talked for a while about his other great passion, recorded music, of which he has an encyclopedic knowledge, and how he always enjoyed introducing people to music that was unknown to them, which led me to ask if he felt the same way about poets and poetry, and if he enjoyed giving workshops on the dark art of poetry writing. So here's a bit more of Sati, this time the orchestrated version, orchestrated by his friend Debussy. And then Peter Bukowski and the imparting of wisdom. Or rather, an introduction to the harsh realities of writing poetry. The aspect that I enjoy is imparting some practical and philosophical tips gleaned from my 35 years of experience and I'm trying to convey my enthusiasm for writing poems but I think I'm also trying to get across that it involves thousands of hours of facing a blank page and we can all sit around and say wouldn't it be lovely to be a published writer but it's actually a lot of labor a lot of work and you've got to find out whether you've got the will to be a writer and to commit yourself to that regular work and it is work, isn't it? Yeah, it's... How many hours a day would you spend, do you think? Uh, I guess that varies from day to, yeah, day to day. Because, because to my mind, poetry... Like, I get more commissioned poems now. So I've got a friend who actually headhunts CEOs for companies around the world. And he hires me once a year to write a poem on a specific subject instead of sending out a Christmas card he wants to send out a sort of inspirational poem to people in positions of sort of leadership and decision making so in the past I've been uh, commissioned to write a poem about equity a poem about fairness and a poem where my brief was to use the phrase by Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. So I've addressed those three subjects and it's made me end up writing a poem that I may not have written without the seed of the challenge of that subject matter. And even though it's being used in the so-called corporate world, I've tried to make each of those poems of use to the individual in daily life. Um, so I think a poem such as that can take me a month about thinking about fairness and the actual physical reality of the time at the keyboard might be three sessions of several hours over three days. But there's a great story where Picasso was asked, 
someone looked at one of his paintings and said, how long did it take you to paint that painting? And he said, well, physically, it took me an hour to paint it, but I'm 60 years old and everything I've experienced in my life, I've brought to engaging with that canvas and the paintbrush in my hand. So the painting actually took me 60 years and one hour <laughs> to create that painting. Mm. So I bring my life experience to each poem, but I bring a lot of thinking to, to my latest poem. So the practical physical number of hours might be eight or 20 hours but the thinking might have been several days or weeks of thinking. Or even years. Yes. For example, a poem about my parents' divorce, I feel I thought about it for several years before I was ready to write that poem. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't measure it that way it's a 24 7 occupation i talk when i give a poetry workshop i talk about being alert to the world part of being a creative person is being alert to the world noticing things and then the thing that you noticed might just be sitting there on the back burner or in the back of your mind but you'll use that, I sometimes call those, instead of calling them seeds, I call them diving boards. Something that you've observed and that's got you started thinking is a diving board into the blank page of the poem. Do you feel that, yeah, that blank page is that stepping off into the void of your thoughts and the void of your creativity and hoping that something you're going to you're going to find something to grab on on the way down yeah 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 the idea is not to get stressed or intimidated by the blank page and to realize that you're not actually hammering into marble that you're writing something on a computer or on a piece of paper and you can actually erase it or del delete it and start again, go down a different path till you find the sort of right path. Um, when I give a poetry workshop, I talk about sometimes you need to go down a false path a certain length of time to realise it's a false path. So, and I also talk about you've got to dig away a lot of dirt to get to the gold. So you read about novelists that have written 300 pages of a first draft and they realise they've gone about entering the novel the wrong way and they get rid of the 300 pages mm. and start again. Do you have like a, a drawer of half finished or half started or what do you do with poems that don't work? Do you, do you I, have I, a I ceremonial call, torching? Or? Well, I call them stillborn and there's a quote by uh, William Faulkner and he says no interest for the writer no interest for the reader so if you start writing a bit of writing and you find it's actually becoming laborious and it's turned into a bit of a chore and it hasn't got any oomph or any engine in it you know, you're, you're pleased you've got, you started to write something, but then you, you wake up and you, real, you realise that you've, you've said it before or it's not very original or exciting or refreshing and you just, it's just verbiage. It's just words on a page. And so I just get rid of it and cleaning the slate, it's, I find it cleansing. You know? Yeah. I, I had that manila folder full of, of half ideas 
one word or a phrase written down and I realised I was never returning to the vanilla folder full of stuff and so one day I just went to the recycle bin in the back garden and that inch thick chunky folder full of ideas that I might get back to I put it in the recycle bin and it was really liberating so you know I don't want anyone to discover these half-written, embarrassing, cringe-inducing. You might start write something down and and then you've written it down on an index card beside your bedside table and you thought it was a good idea at the time and you wake up next morning and it, you think, oh, that's cringe-inducing. <laughs> um, How often does that happen? Oh... I think it happens often enough to keep you humble. (laughs) So it continues to happen? Yeah, I mean, I continue to write poems that I delete and I continue to have sort of misfires and preambles till I find my you know, the road that I want to go down and the road that captivates me and interests me and I'm having a sort of what I call a word adventure. That's what you call it, a word adventure? Oh, well, there's a poem in the latest book called Ink Adventures Mm. and there's an exciting part where a piece of writing which I call letting go of the steering wheel Mm. and so you end up writing something that you had no idea you were going to write and it's actually working and it works and it's you're pleased with it and it's because you you went on it on an exploration and you you were free enough to allow a diversion or a digression and the digression or the diversion was was of interest yeah and and you, you can't you can't plan any of this stuff you can't sort of sit down and say i'm going to write a profound poem no, i imagine know, that would be difficult you you can or you can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a humorous poem. They come about when they come about, but they don't come about if you don't face the blank page. You know, you know, a birth comes about by, by pushing, by <laughs> having their con- contractions and, and pushing and... Um, you know, you could argue it's the same with a bowel movement. But if you push too hard, you get a hernia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, there's a real playfulness in some of your poetry as well. Like the letter R has put its best foot forward. And uh, one of my favourites, which is a poem called Punctuation Blues, which is an underscore as a hyphen that's depressed. What, what, some, so there's two, the two sides. There's the, the deeply uh, thoughtful, and I'm not saying that that isn't thoughtful, but it's playful too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what makes you want to write that playful stuff as well as the, the stuff that's more... Well, I think the two things that get us through life are our ability to draw on our courage when the chips are down and our sense of humour, our ability to give a philosophical shrug or to have a a sense of the absurd. Sometimes we take ourselves way too seriously and if we loosen up and take the mickey out of ourselves sometimes, um, because... Because children can be delighted by things. And I often think, how often can an adult say, today 
I was delighted. You know, a child can be delighted by seeing a butterfly land on a sunflower. And how many adults are not jaded, not ultra busy, not stressed, not worrying about something to be delighted upon occasion. So maybe I'm trying to delight people in, in a poem. Not being sentimental or soppy or hallmark greeting card, but being a bit surreal, a bit wacky, and having people look at something in a refreshing way. I'm always after the refreshing image, the refreshing way of looking at a hyphen or looking at a question mark. So some of my poems are a bit visual, almost like concrete poems. Um, I read a great quote by Charles Bukowski and he said, there's all this analysis and dissec dissection of writing. I don't know what all the fuss about. Writing is painting. So when I read those three words by Charles Bukowski, writing is painting, that's really helped me be visual as a poet without over-describing. So, so something like the poem Mining, which is uh, picking his nose, Eric wishes that he had more nostrils. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's a bit of surrealism <coughs> in there. It's visual though. Yeah, it's visual, it's wacky, and you know, you sometimes see people in a traffic jam picking their nose and it's almost like they wish they had another nostril so they could have more fun. <laughs> is that the way you see mining, though? Is, you know, we'll oh. dig another hole, there's more fun. Uh, not quite. It's, it's just a idea of um, picking your nose as a form of mining. Not in, not in a critical way, but it, it, it's, it's a sort of deceptive title because you think, oh, is this poem going to be about mining? It's about mining the inside of your nose. <laughs> um, and, and something like the... But there is a serious side to it as well because I, I look at the poem like the letter O feels empty inside. Yeah. That line, that's the poem, feels empty inside. Yeah. I know we can, we can look at the external world uh, at the expense of our internal world. Yes. And come to a point in our lives where we do feel empty inside, like the letter O. Yes. It all seems great. Yeah. But there's this hole in the middle. Yeah, there's... Um, again, I was talking to a friend and he knows some very wealthy people in Melbourne and um, one of the wealthy people is married to quite a demanding woman who likes to have all the latest gadgets and furnishings and vehicles and he confessed to his friend that he sort of feels hollow inside and this was just the other day my friend mentioned it to to me and he it's that idea of having a sort of purpose and a focus and fulfilling um, I I write when I'm going well with writing poetry, when I've written a poem that satisfies me, I do find it fulfilling. And it is, it has become my reason, my way of being creative and a key anchor in my life. I have become a writer of poems through teaching myself how to write poems. Have you ever thought about other forms of writing? Have you tried other things? People say that all the time. And my reply is this. If you're at a party and someone knew you were a brain surgeon, this stranger who hadn't met you, but someone told them that you were a brain surgeon, and that stranger came up to you and said, oh, I hear you're a brain surgeon. Have you ever talked, have you ever thought of being a vet? I just want to write poetry till the day I die. Um, 
I'm focusing on, I'll be a student of language till the day I die, but poetry is how I express myself. It's how it comes out, comes out as poetry. Um, and I just want to concentrate on that medium. So I would be going way backwards forgetting my 35 years of practice, my self-imposed apprenticeship of learning how to write poems. If you could guarantee me that I was going to live to 120, I might try writing an essay, but I'm going to keep writing poetry. That was Making Art, Episode 2. My thanks to Peter Bukowski and his lovely wife, Helen, for allowing me into their kitchen. Peter's most recent volume of poetry, The Courage Season, is published by Guillotine Press and is available at all good independent bookstores. I've always wanted to say that. Colom for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music, was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist and graphic designer Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Technical production is by Ben Churchill at Sonic Playground in Port Melbourne and the show was produced by me, Neil Pickett. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be coming to you this time from a lounge room in Abbotsford where I had a chat with the performance artist, director and actor Maud Davey and her partner, the actor, theatre maker and festival director, David Pidd. What's it like being a couple raising kids and making art? That's our next episode, which will go up, as I said, in two weeks. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at The Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com.au. I'll leave you now with Peter Pukowski reciting a poem, which was first published in the 1998 collection The Heart at 3am. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. This poem's called Some Beliefs of Mine. An idea is a bee that wants to start a swarm. Clouds are books full of rain. Dawn is a girl removing her necklace of stars. The heart is a porter tired of carrying our luggage of excuses. Fear is the seed of loneliness. Fish live in the only beautiful prisons. Bitterness is the oldest desert. Only truth will make a poem last longer than a candle.